to go let's do it welcome back my friends today's going to be a very Jewish class it's very Jewish because <laughs> you know that until the 18th century and the ushering in of the proverbial enlightenment the notion that happiness was an attainment of a worthy life wasn't um, accepted, at least not in the Western world. This, uh, this very idea that it's good to be happy and that it's uh, a worthy thing is always a very Jewish approach to life. In fact, it is interesting to note that the Rambam when he talks about the ideal of prophecy. Hashem's presence actually, if you will, resting on people. The Rambam says, Ein hashchina sheira, elo simcha. That Hashem's presence can only come to a person when he or she is in a state of joy. And Maimonides tells us in the laws of Yesod de HaTorah, the foundations of the Torah, an important foundation of the Torah is this idea that God communicates with people, not everybody, some people. They're called Nevi'im or Nevi'ot, prophets or propheticists. And that in order for the prophecy to come upon them, they had to be in a state of joy. And because they had to be in a state of joy, they would surround themselves with music and song, trying to elevate their consciousness. Not melancholy music, not sad music, joyous music. In the Beis HaMikdash, there was a lot of joyous music that played. Rabbeinu Bachaya, following our Torah tradition, always knew that joy and happiness is something that a worthy life should be able to obtain. The problem is that sometimes it's really hard to be happy. Sometimes things don't go the way we want them to. Certainly in today's day and age, everybody wants to be happy. Historically, people have sought happiness since antiquity. The search for happiness can be documented at least two and a half millennia, from Socrates to Confucius, from Aristotle to Epicure. The ancient philosophers were all looking for happiness. And forgive me, I don't know why we're getting this problem here, pop-up. And this is a, an industry that has continued to sell books and attract audiences all the way through the ages. It was John Locke 
who wrote that the attainment of happiness or pursuit of happiness was a worthy thing. I believe Thomas Jefferson actually plagiarized Locke for the most part in enshrining the pursuit of happiness as, a, as an inalienable right, a God-given right to each and every one of us and all the way down till the modern era with uh, Victor Frankl and Abraham Maslow, people have been constantly seeking happiness. How do you remedy the things that bring you down? How do you deal with circumstances that are profoundly saddening and unhappy? Can we really always be happy? Rabbeinu Bechaya says, yes, you can. We can. Every one of us can. And there's only one way to get there. You guessed it. Betochen. In making the final case for building Betochen, Rabbeinu Bechaya is coming to the end of his peticha, of his introduction to his gates, his shara betochen, Rabbeinu Bechaya now makes the final argument. He's not talking to you about a religious or spiritual perspective, but rather a worldly or material benefit, a virtue of living life best. Rabbeinu Bechaya says, the fringe benefits to Betochen, which are a fulfillment of our Jewish destiny, is happiness. Well, let's take a look inside and see exactly what he says. In the Kihat version, this little part of the Peticha was aptly entitled, Always Happy. Page 34. Umehen, and amongst the worldly or material benefits that a person will achieve, if he or she achieves a full-throated form of betochen, real trust in Hashem. Simchosoi bechol inyan. Happiness, being happy with whatever sheya'atak a love, whatever comes his way. Now, the language here is really interesting. In the Kihat version, they render sheyetak, whatever is forced upon him. I don't think that's what the word actually means. In the Feldheim translation of the Shara Betochen, they wrote whatever situation he is placed in. I think that's most apt. The art school rendered it any circumstance assigned to him. I don't think that's correct either. I think that Placed is probably the closest we have in English. Ha'atoka in Hebrew means to uproot oneself, to go out of one place and come to another place. Now, we choose typically to be wherever we are. <laughs> I chose to be here now. You chose to be here now. And by the way, thank you. I'm grateful you have chosen to spend this time together with me. I hope that as we study the immortal words of Rabbeinu Bachaya, both you and I will find our lives enriched. But there are often times where we don't choose to be in a particular place or circumstance. <laughs> How do they say it? Stuff happens. So in any situation, and this could be geographic 
or it could be situational or experiential, in any kind of reality or frame that we will find ourselves. I suppose he used the word forced because it's referring to something you didn't choose to be in. Maybe we do choose sometimes. And then say, why did I choose this? Bad choice. <laughs> this, this wasn't a good idea at all. The food is terrible here. Why did I choose to eat lunch at this restaurant? Why did I buy their advertising? Let me tell you a little secret. The restaurant you choose to eat in wasn't really your choice. In fact, it's possible that the business you chose wasn't your choice either. Bechira, real free choice, only exists from a faith perspective in areas of Yirat Shemayim, that which is directly linked to living a meaningful life, namely living with a sense of reverence for God. Whether you chose to have a milk or dairy meal was perhaps not really a choice, destiny, even predictable. Unless you weren't supposed to be eating milchiks. You shouldn't have been eating dairy because you just had a meat meal an hour ago. That's a choice you make. That's part of Yeracha Mayan. That's part of awe, reverence from heaven. I think I chose to wear this tie or suit today, but that's not really Bechira. I was influenced by a, a variety, a multitude of things, possibly millions of moving pieces since my childhood that brought me to this exact moment this morning when I decided to dress as I did. That's not a choice. Teaching this class, that's a choice. Your participation, that was your choice because it's part of your Shemayim. So whether the circumstances were forced upon us or placed upon us or even somehow circumstantially unfolded but what we would call in English coincidence that's an 11 letter name for God's providence so if we you're in a circumstance in a situation you might be in a happy situation and you might be in a very unhappy situation happy situations include things like feel good things that taste delicious feel nice enable us to enjoy or experience pleasure. Things that bring us unhappiness are deprivation or lack of the things we love or like or want. Experiencing pain rather than pleasure. Suffering. That doesn't make most normal people happy. And yet Rabbeinu Bechaya says, if you develop this betochen, you will find yourself in any situation and nonetheless find yourself happy. And even if the situation will be at odds with your very nature, meaning something that doesn't agree with you. And when we're in a situation that we don't like being in, or doesn't agree with us, you can't say, well, just get used to it. Enjoy it. 
If you're in pain, can't say, well, just get used to pain and enjoy it. Just get used to embarrassment. Revel in it. Enjoy it. It's against my nature. I can't divest myself of my nature. There are people who are profoundly sick and they enjoy pain. They're sick. That's not normal. It's their nature, perhaps. So they might be able to find joy or happiness in that. But if I don't like pain, and most people don't, if I don't like shame or embarrassment or disparagement, and most normal people don't, how are you supposed to be happy? How are you supposed to find joy in that kind of situation? Interestingly, the commentaries, the traditional commentaries on the Shana B'tochen, when they speak about or try to elucidate these words of Rabbeinu Bechaya. Simchasei b'chol inyan, joy in every situation, in some versions, she'atikehu a love, that is brought to you, a love means by the Creator, placed in a situation, circumstances that are destined for you, not what you wanted, even if you chose it. That was a mistake. Now, I'm in a bad set of circumstances. I'm unhappy. Rabbeinu Bachaya says, you can be in a state of happiness regardless. <laughs> Although this goes against your nature. Suppose some people like it hot and some like it cold. You're in a nice cold environment, you're loving it, you're feeling great, you're happy. If you're in a very hot and humid environment, you're not happy. It's against your nature. The people who love it hot and humid are extremely unhappy when they're in frigid temperatures. And here, he says, you can be in a circumstance that goes against your grain and nature and still be happy. The Neder Barkadish talks about something that just about anybody could relate to. Suppose a person had wealth and affluence, material wherewithal, and then Yorad Minachosov. They lost their wealth. Now, truth be told, there are people who are born or raised with nothing and are happy. They never knew any other way. There's a beautiful meme going around on social media. It shows a picture of small children somewhere in Africa and, and the verbiage attached to it is that a visitor from North America offers the child something and he runs and calls his friends and divides it equally amongst them. And his visitor asks, why'd you do that for? He says, that's how we live here. We always divide everything we have equally. Well. If that becomes his nature, that makes him happy. A child who's raised that way might actually enjoy living with that kind of equanimity. But nobody who had material wherewithal and lost it could possibly be happy about that. Nedabakadir says, you need a lot of inner strength, a lot of fortitude. To trust God with every fiber of your being, with every ounce of your heart and soul, that your nature shouldn't 
detract from your state of happiness. Now, usually we're happy when we get what we want. Here, Rabbeinu Bechaya maintains that we could be in a set of circumstances that is profoundly at odds with our nature and still be happy. Why? And the answer, in a word, because he trusts in God. Well, how does trust in God make me happy when I'm not? I'm hungry now. I don't have food. I'm not happy. Oh, trust in God. That'll make you satiated, said no one ever. How is a person supposed to be happy when they're missing something they want and need? Says Rabbeinu Bechaya, because the meaning of trust in Hashem is, If God put you in a circumstance, it must be good. But I don't think it's good. Well, that's because you are dealing with the apparent reality. But you're believing in a truth that's beyond what you can see or feel. And you are absolutely certain that whatever is happening for you right now is actually a good thing. So you're happy. Imagine, just try to think of your being in a set of circumstances that seems awful, but actually is going to be life relaxing. If you could have had hindsight, or you could have had 20-20 vision about the future, you'd be happy. Imagine the person who was delayed unavoidably from getting on a train or a plane, and then his life ends up getting saved because of that. They'd be most unhappy missing their plane or train, and incredibly grateful if that ends up saving their life. A, well at the time you were very upset. If you are very upset, said Rabbi Bechaya, you clearly don't have betochen. If you had betochen, you would say, thank Hashem, I'm so happy I missed that plane. That doesn't mean that anything's going to happen to the passengers. For whatever reason, I need to be here. Suppose that because you missed your plane or train, you ended up meeting the most wonderful person. Something that changed your whole life. And had you not missed it, you never would have met them. So what turns out to be a seeming bad event in your life actually becomes the most amazing thing, the thing for which you're most grateful. Here's an example that can happen to so many young people. They're in a relationship. They're moving in a direction in which they're eyeing marriage, and then the relationship falls apart. They're heartbroken. Even in the observant community where people don't date for fun but rather marriage, things like this happen. You thought it was good and the other party didn't. You felt let down, abandoned, unappreciated. Nobody likes rejection. And then what happens if you end up marrying the perfect person? And you realize that, wow, that was the greatest favor Hashem ever could have done for me. 
So when you look back, you're very happy. How's about being happy at the time? How? I feel rejected because I have absolute trust and faith. And I know that what's happening for me right now is the very best. If I can believe that, not only in theory, but I can download that faith into real time, the way I actually experience events and circumstances, simchasei, my joy, is always at hand. <laughs> I can actually always be happy. I know what some of you might be thinking. That's not realistic. It's not true. You, you're convincing yourself of something. Well, my friends, that's not true. Because the truth is that Hashem loves every one of us. And the truth is that everything Hashem does is for our best. Even if we may not recognize or appreciate it at this moment. A couple of episodes ago, I shared a story from the Gemara about a man whose name was Nachum. They called him Ishgamzu, the man who said this too. Nachum Ishgamzu was sent on a mission, a mission of mercy on behalf of the Jewish people to plead the case before a particularly capricious and cruel emperor of the Roman Empire at the time. He heads off to Rome and he's got gifts, tribute. You remember the story. He's robbed. In the box, earth, sand, pebbles, instead of diamonds, rubies, and jewels. There's differing opinions in the commentaries whether Nochum was aware of this or only discovered it upon his arrival to the Roman emperor and the opening of the box. But at any rate, when Nochum realized what happened, he said, Gam Zolotova. This too is for the very best. He knew he wouldn't be able to make a police report. He could never prove that they had stolen his rubies and gems. He was on a mission. He couldn't turn around. He said it was going to be for the best. If you remember, the story actually ends. It is for the best. <laughs> what he brings is far more valuable than rubies or diamonds. It ends up being a secret weapon which wins a war on the theater for the Roman Caesar or the Roman Emperor and brings him great honor and happiness. He richly rewards Nachum. And it ended up being for the very best. How could he have known? He didn't. But he believed Gamzu Latova. This is easy to talk about when we look back at many events in our life. It's extremely difficult when we are in the set of circumstances and can see the forest for the trees. That's where Betachem comes in. With proper trust in Hashem, knowing that everything Hashem does is for our best, we can actually always be happy. None of the self-help gurus can offer a better path to happiness. <laughs> they can't because they don't believe that everything happens for the best. Epicure believed in nothing. Aristotle, false gods. There was no way these people could have told you that whatever happens, happens for the best, and as such, inevitably, you'd be unhappy at times. 
You can try to refocus, recalibrate, count your blessings, think of the good things, and everybody has something good to be grateful for. But in the end, when you're in a circumstance, a situation that's against your nature, you're going to have to be unhappy. Nobody, no philosophy, no faith system can offer this incredible reality of always being happy, except for Torah Judaism. Except if you buy into Rabbeinu B'chayah's betachen plan. Because if you build your betachen, you will always be able to be happy. Rabbeinu B'chayah now continues, and he says, so if it'll be against his nature, you'll still be happy, and he says now, he illustrates this, Hashem does what is good for you just as a mother. That's the paradigm of mercy in Torah literature. The most merciful creature in the world, most compassionate, is a mother. Libna for her child, as she washes or bathes him, now, very interestingly, many of the translations render v'chituloi and his diapering. I think they do that because chitulim in modern Hebrew means a diaper. Why shouldn't the baby be happy to get diapered? This did not make any sense to me. The Feldheim version said diapering. The Kihat version said diapering. I said, no, no, no. Last time I checked, and I had a couple of children, Baruch Hashem, when the baby cries, the first thing we look for is, maybe he's got a full diaper. Babies don't like full diapers. They like being clean. Although they don't like being put into a bath, and they usually cry when they're first put into it, it's rare, at least in my experience, that babies should cry or show unhappiness when they're being diaper changed. So, let's take a look at the Gemara. Mesechet Shabbat, page Samach Vav The Gemara actually speaks about the very ideals or realities that are being referred to by Rabbeinu Bechaya. It's a question of what may or may not be performed or done on Shabbat. And I should add and tell you that according to the Torah, one is not permitted to do, well, let's just call it medical procedures on the holy day of Shabbat. As a rule, those procedures are supposed to be done during the weekdays, unless it's an emergency. So the Gemara tells us that there are a number of things which may be performed on Shabbat, despite the fact that they aren't particularly dangerous. The Omar Rav Ovin Bar Rav Huna, Rav Ovin Bar Huna said, Omar Rav Choma Bar Giyura, Liflufi Yenuka B'Shabbata, Shapir, Dummy. To swaddle a baby on Shabbat, or Lipufi Yenuka, is something that may be done or may be performed. What does this mean? Lipufi, Rashi says, 
to bind him with cloth. The koshro b'chaguro rechava. And then to fasten him with a wide belt. Umityashvim pirke evarim. His bent limbs are able to be reset. Shehim rakin v'nishmatim b'chevle haleda. These limbs are uh, soft and they may have been bent out of shape through the pain of birth. That's what Rashi says. Interestingly, Rashi elsewhere says that this is the kind of things that would be done so that his limbs might be straight and not bent. What's going on here? Well, here's what I found out with a little bit of research. Most adults have a total of 206 bones. Most babies have between 270 to 300 bones at birth. Where do those bones go? Oh, well, the babies have separate bones. However, the bones eventually fuse or grow together. So the fact that newborns can have up to 100 bones more than the typical adult just means that their skeletal structure starts off as cartilage. It's a firm tissue, but it's softer and more pliant and flexible than bone. This is kind of important, because if the baby's skeleton was hard, you wouldn't be able to get him out. The soft skeleton is what allows the baby to fit through the birth canal, and it allows for his growth once he arrives. Babies absorb calcium, and the cartilage eventually or gradually ossifies to become hard bone. Around the time that babies are two or three, apparently bones begin to fuse together, and to my surprise, I found out that it takes till people are usually in their 20s to have their entire skeleton hard and formed. Well, because of this, babies who don't have hard bones can often have bones misshapen on the way out. <laughs> I also found out that babies are born without kneecaps. The kneecap starts off for a baby as cartilage, not a hard bone. And it doesn't start to harden until somewhere between two or six years old. In fact, you can take a look at a, an x-ray for children and see where they are on their growth chart if they're where most children are at 10 years old or perhaps maybe a few years prior by the diameter or thickness of the bones. The bones ossify to a certain point or let the doctor know whether this child is going to have a later growth spurt or not. Not by what you see on the surface, but by what's inside. So why don't we do this? How come we never heard about it? Well, Rashi seems to indicate that was the custom then. This is what they once did. They would wrap the child. And I should point out to you that there is a dispute in the Talmud between Rav Nachman and Rav Sheshis of whether we're allowed to straighten the bones by hand or simply allowed to swaddle the baby in a very aggressive way, in which case the cartilage would set itself right. So apparently, in today's day and age, 
there are sometimes babies who are born with club foot. It means a foot that's literally bent the other way. Babies don't walk for the first year or so, so it wouldn't make a difference, which is kind of good because it gives opportunity for the doctor to cast the foot before any kind of delay sets in. So the baby's tendons bend and they stretch very easily and the doctor can turn the club foot in the right direction to correct the problem. If they gently move the foot into a position that's where it's supposed to be and place a cast, invariably the child will grow up perfectly healthy and will be able to walk without any issues or problems whatsoever. Now, whether the Gemara refers to club foot or sometimes a broken shoulder that can easily heal, I don't know. But I do see very clearly that the baby, by being bound or swaddled, not in the typical sense, might be in a fair bit of pain. So when you read some of the translations here, it sounds like a baby being diapered or swaddled isn't really happy. That's not the metaphor. We're talking about a baby being tightly wound, tied, and then this kind of wide belt is sometimes untied at a later point. All of it is profoundly painful and uncomfortable for the child. Why does the mother do it? Because she hates her baby? Of course not. She loves the baby more than life itself. Because she loves her baby so much, she's doing what it takes to make sure that her baby heals and is whole. Now, if the baby could think and the baby could understand, the baby might appreciate it. But at that age, the infant only can feel pain and cry. And so it does. Says Rabbeinu Bechaya, you are a little wiser. You can actually think about what's happening. Instead of assuming that what's really going on here is somebody putting you in pain, instead, see this as your bones being, if you will, straightened. Your body being healed. All of this is done al karchay. The baby's forced into it. But if the baby could, it would thank you later on. Because as a result of that harsh swaddling, its bones went right back where they should have been. Who says that our relationship with God is like that of a baby? David HaMelech does. And we'll soon take a look in the verse in Tillam and see what that means. He refers to himself as a suckling, as a baby. And what Rabbeinu B'chayi clearly is stating to us is that when things happen that hurt, it's actually for our own benefit. We may not feel it, we may not know it. However, just like the infant's soft cartilage bones that become bent because of the forceful contractions that are only fixed when the baby is swaddled tightly in this fabric and secured with his belt and then released, that allows the straightening of its bent limbs, albeit painful temporarily, so we believe that everything that happens to us is for our very best. David HaMelech knew this. He experienced a tremendous amount of adversity in his life and yet was always humbly 
and happily serving Hashem. He accepted with equanimity whatever came his way because he had perfect betochen. The word betochen, trust in Hashem, is mentioned copiously in the book of Tillam. One could argue that it forms the very skeleton, the very frame of David HaMelech's extraordinary attitude, his approach, his relationship with Hashem. And of course, as we've mentioned many times, David HaMelech's Tillam wasn't written as a personal expression, but rather, Ne'im Zmiro Yisrael, he expressed himself on behalf of us all. We can all find our voice in the voice or words of King David. We can all find the kind of faithful trust that enabled David HaMelech to be happy in every situation in our own lives as well. There's an incredibly difficult letter. Difficult not because it's hard to understand. Difficult because it's really difficult to implement. That's found in the Igris Kedish, the holy letters of the Alter Rebbe. It's the 11th epistle, the 11th Igeris. And here, in this pastoral letter that was addressed to the Hasidic community as a whole, the Alter Rebbe opens with Lahaskilcha Bina to enlighten you with understanding. In this letter, the Alter Rebbe demands a Avedas Hashem, a spiritual service that is of a caliber that seems so formidable, so unattainable, that the Alter Rebbe actually has to address the letter in a almost individual way, telling us that this is something every single one of us can and is expected to strive to attain. What is the essence of the letter? Dr. Rebbe talks about a person living a life of suffering and always maintaining perfect trust and as such happiness with what Hashem gives him. It's a very high level of faith that the Rebbe maintained that it was within the reach of every single individual. I'll read to you a little bit of what he writes. Dalta Rebbe says, With emuna hamitis b'yetzebreishis, when you achieve an absolute belief or faith in the creator of the entire universe, in other words, you don't believe that God once created the world. You believe that God is continuously bringing the world into existence. And when you believe that Hashem is continually performing the Bria, that creation is occurring at every time and at every moment, as we've discussed at length in many of the Tanya classes, think of virtual reality being powered each and every moment. You pull the plug, and it's gone. So it is the mishavim kol habruim yeshmayin. Everything is being created, so to speak, ex nihilo, something from nothing. When a person will contemplate and think deeply about this in the depths of his understanding, 
How could you possibly then come to the conclusion that things are bad for you? And he's talking about real afflictions. He's talking about Yesurim, suffering in the area of Bona, Chaya, Umezena, God forbid, children, health, or sustenance. But right now, Hashem is doing this for you. And if you believe in Hashem, then you know, and now that I hear paraphrases in Medrash, in Parshas, Vayera, Ein Ra Milo. God doesn't do anything bad. Only Taiv. Hakol Taiv. You kidding? Rabbi, I'm suffering. Person, God forbid, has suffered loss, pain, deprivation, affliction. Alter Rebbe says, She'ini Musuk. We can't understand it. It's a good that's so abundant, so overwhelming, that it actually hurts. But at its root source, it's really good. We just don't have the ability to see how and why it's good. And this is the amuna for which a person was created, to know that there is no place void of God. Because God is everywhere, and because God is bringing us into existence, then strength and gladness are in His place. It's all good. It has to be good. He lives with this absolute faith in Hashem. In other words, he's supposed to be maintaining, as the Rebbe points out on a note, a happy frame of mind at all times, despite the fact that there are the kind of different and opposite times that Shlomo HaMelech mentions in Kohelet, in Ecclesiastics. Alter Rebbe says, Bechol eight, in all of the times. The person who is miserable, who grieves, who laments, he demonstrates that he's having some difficulty, some suffering and pain in his affliction. He's missing something, something good then that person behaves like a, one who denies Hashem's presence. Hamaimin, the person who really believes in Hashem, he can never be perturbed from anything in the world. With regard to how things appear in the mundane, terrestrial, everyday reality, he takes them all equally. A person who doesn't, is focusing on what they want rather than what God wants. Now, if I can believe with absolute fortitude, with unshakable faith that whatever happens is happening for the very best, then I can be happy. Happy that Hashem is doing for me exactly what Hashem knows I need right now. I can hope and pray that it's going to be overtly good and I'll be able to taste its sweetness. But I can still be happy knowing that what's happening is Litova, 
is all for the good. Now, if you're thinking that requires an enormous leap of faith, you're right, it does. But a leap of faith isn't a lie. It's still the truth. Let me share with you an excerpt of a letter that the Rebbe wrote. Seems to me from the way this letter is written that it was a woman who had suffered greatly during the Second World War. It seems from the Rebbe's letter that she's of Russian extraction, or at least wrote the letter in Russian, and she's living, I think, in the land of Israel, although I'm not 100% sure of that. The letter is written in Yiddish. The Rebbe apologizes, saying he doesn't have a Russian typewriter in his office. And the typewriter that he does have is Hebrew and English, so he's writing to her in Yiddish. It also appears that the writer of the letter, this letter is written in 1956, had suffered enormously. It was in a deep state of depression and melancholy. The Rebbe says to her that a person has to contemplate the idea that a person has limited vision. And because the myopic reality or a myopic ability for us to see only focuses on the here and now, you can't come to conclusions by virtue of what you see, feel, or experience. I'll read it to you in Yiddish. Varum A person sees just a few pixels, small, very small part of the bigger picture. The river, that's the reason, kennen it upschatzen, beemes, richtig, der Inhalt von dem, was er seht. We see things and interpret them. But the Rebbe says, if you're only seeing a small part of the field of vision, you can't really interpret it accurately because you're only seeing a few frames of a much, much bigger strip of film. You're only seeing a few pixels of an enormous panorama. And therefore, what you're seeing isn't accurate. It would be foolish to come to a conclusion based on the limited vision we have. The Rebbe says, I will give you an example to help you realize and appreciate what I mean. An illustration. Suppose, says the Rebbe, a person in an operatia commenta. He goes into an operating room. Von a hospital, shall see that a person is lying there. He's lying after apparatiatish on the operating table. Arumim mention around this person who is lying on the operating table are people who hold knives, scalpels, and schneiden. They're cutting this person. The person being operated on, krechts von Yusurim, is sighing in utter pain. A person who doesn't know the history of operations or has never heard about a medical procedure like this, he'll come to the conclusion that this is awful. He'll run out with a, a great hue and a cry, with a gewalt. 
Mit genommenen Menschen und schneiden. Monsters. They took a person and they're cutting him up. The person is screaming, writhing in pain. Er krechts von Yusurim. Er kann nicht helfen, zu befreien sich. He can't free himself. He's strapped down and there's these terrible criminals who are literally torturing a person, killing him. That's because they've never heard of an operation. They were just shown a small amount of reality. They come to very quick conclusion. That's entirely wrong-headed. Aber erklären, when you come to this visitor and you explain it to him properly, as the operation is nötig, this operation is necessary in order for this person, Zalkin 11, the person should be able to live for many years afterwards. This is a life-saving operation. Und der Riber, it's precisely because we're trying to preserve life for years to come, that benemt nicht in acht de Wehtug von etlicher Schau, that we're prepared to inflict temporary pain for a few hours, because it's going to yield a life of joy afterwards. Many years of pleasure, small price to pay. Either a few hours of pain and years of pleasure, or a few hours in which you don't feel the pain, and then the person isn't. So the visitor would now understand things very differently. The knife-wielding criminals, thugs or murderers, are actually agents of kindness. They're medical professionals who have dedicated themselves to saving the life of another human being. The Rebbe says all of this is an apt illustration for circumstances we might experience. As euch verständlich, so too can be understood. As bei Menschen sein Leben, that a person in their life trefft sich als Sach, welche ist verbunden mit Wehtug. The person has tremendous heartache, real pain. Nobody can deny that. However, the, despite the fact that it's for a Stickzeit, for a period of time, there's Emes of Wehtug, Heaven forfend, but knowing that everything is Bashgacha Pratis, the Rebbe goes on to write, should bring a person a sense of inner satisfaction, a sense of gratitude, even a sense of happiness. Imagine a person who desperately wants the operation and can't get it, and finally gets the people to agree. The hospital will accept him. He couldn't afford it. The insurance is ready to pay. Is he unhappy? We're delighted and happy that he's able to get the life-saving operation. Later on in that same year, this is printed in the 13th volume of the Rebbe's letters, there's another Yiddish letter, and I don't know if it's the same person or not. It, it seems that it might be. The Rebbe says that I've heard from your family that you're not in a good state, that you're in a state of profound melancholy. And the Rebbe says that a person ultimately doesn't know what's good for them. And once again, he uses a different kind of illustration.
He says, it often happens very often. We think we know what's best for us. We would choose in a particular way. However, that doesn't mean that's what's really good. And even the Rebbe says, when you are certain that the thing you choose is good for you, the Rebbe suggests that it's a limited good. And had you been able to wait, or had you seen the full picture, you would have delayed and chosen the good that was far better. An illustration, the Rebbe says, business, as we discussed in yesterday's episode. Business is sometimes a metaphor for life. He says a good business person knows that mefakefnit in a nit passendit you don't sell at the wrong time. Afilo abis is the profit, even if you're getting a profit. So a person who doesn't understand that there's a good time or bad time to sell says, hey, there's a profit to be made. You paid $100, you're selling for 120 But the good business person knows that if you hold on to this merchandise, you can sell it for far more. But you're screaming, I don't understand. There's a profit to be made now. You don't see the picture. The bigger picture says, hold. Now is not the time to sell. Because later on, there will be a feel greater profit. You'll make a much, much bigger profit. The Rebbe suggests that so it is also with HaKadosh Baruch Hu. If we believe that God knows and wants what's best for us, even if to us something else seems good in ways perhaps inexplicable and maybe in ways we might in our terrestrial lifetime never understand, what's happening is for us the greatest of favors. All of this is difficult, no question. None of it is easy, and yet it's possible. Not only is it possible, it's uplifting. If we live this way, we can actually be happy in every time and in every place. Every set of circumstances we're in can be viewed not as its immediate reality, but rather seen in the frame of a much bigger picture that we know we aren't endowed with the ability to see and viewed with absolute trust that what Hashem does is the very best for us. The Shara Betochen illustrates this, this idea of the mother doing what's perhaps painful for the baby and you see the baby crying but ultimately what's for the baby's welfare at best by drawing, as I mentioned, on a verse of Tehillim. The verse is found in Psalm 131. It's the second verse. And there, David HaMelech opens with the Song of Ascents. It's part of the Shir HaMalot. He says, Remember Hashem. Zechoyed Hashem l'davides kolu noisai. Remember all of David's affliction. Sorry, that's verse 132. Legova Libe, verse 131, David HaMelech says, I did not become proud and haughty. I did not think, I did not look for things 
that um, were grand, wondrous, or beyond me. So he opens with a statement of profound humility. And then David HaMelech says, Asher Nishba, pardon me, verse 2. Imloi shivisi vidoimamti nafshik gomul alayimi. This literally translates as, and I'll read it as it's translated in English, I swear I equated and likened my soul to a child just weaned from his mother, like a child just weaned is my soul to me. Let's take a careful look at this. See what the verse is really saying. The Mitsudas David says the word shiviti, comes from the term shove, or equal. David HaMelech says, in every situation, shiviti. Shiviti means equanimity. Regardless of what came my way, I always was mindful of the fact that this is coming to me from Hashem. The daimamti, the Metsudah Tzian says, this too represents equanimity. That which is dimyan, he says, I compared this. So everything was equal, and I compared it. I compared it like a suckling, like a baby who was, if you will, just weaned from his mother. The Mitsudas David goes on to say this. Im loi. Im loi is an expression that represents an oath. Imloi, it's as if saying that David HaMelech has said, it's as if I swear. It sounds kind of dramatic. But so does David says, it's ka'aymer. If I didn't do this, if I got carried away or upset with Hashem when things didn't go the way I liked, then I should be punished in such and such a way. Radak says the same thing. He says, Imloi is ke'inyan Allah v'shvua, it represents an oath. David HaMelech is almost swearing. Kiloimar, as if to say, If I wasn't this way, then some unnamed punishment should come my way. In other words, David HaMelech is very, very firm in his assertion that he never wavered. He was always happy. Whatever came his way, he accepted if you look in the Targum, the Targum renders it as I accepted everything with equanimity. I was silent. I remained composed. I never lost it because I had complete faith in Hashem. And this complete faith in Hashem means that David HaMelech was just like a nursing or baby weaned. Which means, if we follow the words Rashi, Rashi says, which means just as a nursing baby is totally helpless, just as a nursing baby is entirely dependent upon his mother, David HaMelech says, so I am entirely dependent upon God. There is a very interesting sikha from the Rebbe on Parshas Vayetze, where he speaks about Yaakov Avinu surrounding his head with stones to protect him. And the Rebbe says that this is a symbol of Yaakov, of Father Jacob's absolute and total surrender. Because the human kingdom, and of course, even the animal or plant kingdom react. 
But the mineral kingdom, it's inanimate. It has no reaction whatsoever. David HaMelech says that his commitment to Hashem, pardon me, Yaakov says, his commitment to Hashem would be like a domem, would be stone-like in a way that transcends the visceral reaction of heart and mind. In other words, the stone can only be moved by something else. To feel like a stone, in a positive sense, means to completely surrender to Hashem. And to allow one to be picked up and carried by God. That was Yaakov Avinu's commitment as he lowered himself into a very difficult set of circumstances. Circumstances from which he emerged extraordinarily successfully, but not on trying. And yet, Yaakov said, regardless of what will come my way, I will always maintain my faith in a, way, in a way of equanimity, in a way of silent forbearance, knowing that whatever Hashem does is best for me. This, my dear friends, is what Rabbeinu Bechayi draws on in suggesting to us that when we have purest of faith, when we have the strongest of trust, no set of circumstances can possibly bring us down. The Medrash Rabbah elaborates on the comparison of Dovod HaMelech to a suckling baby, saying that just as an infant being naked in his mother's arms doesn't feel any shame, Dovod HaMelech said, I feel no shame before you, Hashem. Dovod HaMelech wasn't afraid to say that he felt helpless and entirely dependent. He wasn't afraid to ask Hashem for help at every single moment in life. And so, we should do. David HaMelech teaches us that if we have total dependence on Hashem, we can always be in a state of joy. Rabbeinu Bechaya drives this point home as his final argument or his case for building betochen in our lives. Only with trust in Hashem can we experience simchasi b'chol inyan. Only with this kind of trust can we be absolutely joyous or happy in every set of circumstances. Easy? <laughs> Most definitely not. But it is possible. And if one develops and nurtures their betochen to this point, you can actually experience everlasting happiness. May Hashem give us the koyach to develop this kind of betochen. <laughs> May we indeed be able to face every set of circumstances happy, knowing that what has happened has definitely happened for our very best. And may we may we merit to finally leave the shadows, the clouds, the darkness and obfuscation behind. May we merit to come into the new world that'll be lit up and illuminated, the world in which we will no longer have questions or struggles, the world in which we won't have to reach deep to find the koyach of betochen. Such will be the reality that we soon enter into with the coming of Mashiach. May it be b'mheira will be amenu amen. Thank you for joining today. If you found this inspiring or uplifting, please take a moment to like and share it so that others can benefit as well. If you haven't yet, please be sure to subscribe. YouTube.com forward slash Rabbi Mendel Kaplan. And I look forward to continuing to study and learn Torah together. Have a beautiful day.